0: Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let me read this for us, and then we will pray for God's blessing on our time. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be with us now this morning as we consider your word. I pray that your spirit would be living and active as it always is, but that it would be within our hearts and in our minds this morning. May we receive your word. Uh, may it, we store it up in our, our lives and practice it uh, as we go about this day and this week ahead. Uh, may you conform us to your image, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I want to uh, consider with you all uh, Christian unity and that theme of unity. Psalm 133. Reminds us, it says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And we've already seen and will continue to see how Paul will appeal to this kind of unity throughout his letter. And it goes without saying, without much explanation at all, that there's a lot of disunity in the world today. We prayed about some of that just now, the, 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 the wars that rage around the world. Uh, from those extreme examples of disunity down to the, the local level of disagreement and discomfort among family members, among friends, and even among churches. And my goal now this morning is it's not to address any particular situation, but rather I want us to get to the very heart of the matter. And that's that's what Paul's doing in this passage in Philippians. And, and so that's where we want to go as well. This this small church in Philippi. this this small congregation was going through a very sharp disagreement. And so how does the apostle Paul, how does this loving pastor deal with this disagreement? How does he love his congregation as there's growing disunity and discord among them? How does he strive to bring about unity and to restore it among them? And for us, as we consider this passage when disagreements arise among us, and they, they do and they have and they will, because we're all human, what, what do we do when those things happen? Among our own family and among our church family. How, how can we strive for unity together? What does that look like? Why is it so good and so pleasant when brothers and sisters dwell in unity? Those are our, our questions this morning. If you remember from last week, Paul has just given the Philippians his his main thesis, his his main proposition that we are to live worthy of the gospel, to let our our manner of life to be worthy of the gospel of Christ they are to to behave as citizens. That's what that word means. They are to live as becomes followers and citizens of Christ's kingdom. And so how are they to do that? How are how are we to do that? That brings Paul to our passage this morning as he now moves into the instructive part of his letter. This, this, uh, the, the rest of the letter will be full of, of imperatives, implications. How, how do we live as gospel citizens? What does that look like? And what we'll see is, is living worthy of the gospel. It looks like being of one mind. We've touched on that theme already. But we see it again here, being one mind, living in unity, striving together for one goal. And these are are not just abstract Christian ideals given in a vacuum, uh, but they're tangible steps for us as we strive to achieve this kind of unity. We'll we'll see in chapter 4, we know from chapter 4 of Paul's letter, that he's one of the reasons he's writing this letter is because of Discord and disunity and disagreement between uh, two women in the church. And so partly he's writing to encourage them to agree in the Lord. And so how can they do that? This is what Paul says in this passage. He lays out one long conditional sentence. It's an if-then clause. Paul says, if these certain things are true, then here's what you must do. I've... Quoted from uh, fellow PCA pastor, uh, Dennis Johnson, before during the series. I'm going to do so again this morning. He has a, a wonderful outline that I, I'm indebted to, uh, indebted, indebted to him for. But he breaks down this passage, this if-then clause, in, into three sections. He has the, the reasons, the goals, and the means. So there's the, the if clause. Those are the reasons. And then Paul states the, the then clause. That's the goal. And then Paul lays out some practical steps, the the means by which the Philippians can achieve this goal. So those are those three things today, uh, the reasons, the goal and the means. I'm actually going to take a little little bit out of order from the text. So when we look at this, here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to look at the goal. This is what they're they're striving after. Then we're going to look at the means of accomplishing that goal. And finally, then we'll conclude where Paul begins which is with the beautiful Trinitarian reasons for striving after the goal. All right, it'll make sense as we go along. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is the goal. And that is, Paul says, to complete my joy by being of one mind. That's the goal. Paul says, complete my joy. And that can seem kind of odd at first. Paul, aren't you the one telling us that we're supposed to consider others before ourselves, but now you're telling us to complete your joy. Was he being narcissistic? Is he being hypocritical? Well, he's not. He's not saying that everyone needs to be selfless, but not me. We know that. He's going to go into a lot of detail throughout this letter about his life and everything that he's given up for the sake of Christ. But here, Paul gives us a hint and gives them a hint And what a truly reoriented life focused on Christ looks like. Paul wants his joy to be completed, but what what is the object of his joy? What constitutes Paul's joy? It's the love and unity of believers living together. And that really hits home for me. Where does the love and unity of all believers fit on your list of things that you're joyful for? <laughs> when, we, when we think of it that way. It didn't really land on my list and, and to my own shame. That we don't value community as we ought to. But Paul understood the beauty of Psalm 133 that we read at the beginning of the sermon. How, how beautiful, how, how wonderful it is. When brothers and sisters in Christ, when they're dwelling together in unity. But this is exactly the counterintuitive nature of the gospel that Paul preached. Think about it. We follow a crucified Christ. Our Lord was a a murdered Messiah. Truly, that was a stumbling block and foolishness to those who hear it. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. We live this kind of backwards, uh, 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 twisted, uh, counterintuitive life. Our values are different. Our values are different than what the world will tell us. And when we value others above ourselves, Paul says that's where true joy is found. And so that's what Paul is saying. He says, complete my joy, complete my joy by being of one mind. Paul says something like, think as as one. You're one person. Think as if you had one mind, one brain, one person, one body. This is the only imperative in our passage this morning. And this is the goal of thinking as one, of being of one mind. And Paul says, that this thing, this being of one mind, is what will complete his joy. So let's just sit, sit there for a moment longer. Consider his words, how good and pleasant it is to dwell in unity. We, we know what that feels like. We know what it's like to be of, of one accord, to be perfectly unified. We know what it's like to feel that way, to be on the same page with one another. And We also know what it's like to not feel that way. how much simpler would life be if we were all perfectly unified? But sometimes we can think about it and we can reorient it back to ourselves, can't we? And that line of thinking usually leads us to say stuff like, well, if only my wife thought just the way, same way that I do, life would be so much simpler. Or if only my husband really understood me, what I'm saying. Maybe you've heard that joke before. That church would be so great if it wasn't for all the people. (laughs) The goal is unity. And certainly there's there's one way of achieving that goal of unity. That's through coercion. That's through force. That's through uh, one figurehead at the top and top down enforcing his vision upon everything and everyone where there's no plurality of elders and it becomes a one-man show, those situations you could say for a time, those are unified. But those situations don't end well. They don't bring glory to God. And it isn't true unity. True unity that brings about joy can be accomplished in no other way than through the means that God has given us. So how can they achieve unity? How are they able to be of one mind and of one accord? It's not through force. It's not through coercion. It's not through any underhanded way. But having put the goal of unity before them, Paul now turns to the means by which they can accomplish that goal. The second thing we see in this passage is the means of how this goal is accomplished. In verses 3 and 4, Paul puts forward the practical ways of accomplishing this unity. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And man, would it be so nice if those verses weren't in our Bibles You can put yourselves in the shoes of the philippians hearing that letter paul just time out one second just want to make sure are you saying and are you sure this is the only way what if we just added some more programs to our church what about money i'll pay you money paul if it means i don't have to do this is there any other way But here's where we move from the nice-sounding ideal of unity, and we get now to the nitty-gritty of daily life together. No, actually, we do need to let go of our own interests and seek the good and the well-being and the interests of our brothers and sisters in Christ above ourselves. Paul uses the same word here for selfish ambition and conceit. Uh, He used the same word to describe those who are preaching from false motives back in chapter one. In that section, Paul says it's, it's of no concern to him how they're preaching and from what motives they're preaching. But his desire is to see Christ above all proclaimed. And so he turns now to the Philippians and he says, what are your motives for doing what you're doing? Because you can be doing good things in the church. You can be serving in a variety of ways, whether that's that's the the service team, the welcome team, worshiping on the band, preaching the gospel, all of these things. It doesn't matter. It can all be done from bad motives and from selfish ambition and rivalry. And so this passage, it's a heat check for us. Why are we doing what we're doing? That we can be doing the right things from the wrong motives. See, Paul desires. And the Spirit's desire for us is that we would do the right things with the right motives. Because that is the only way to accomplish the goal of joyful unity. This word that Paul uses is truly a helpful picture for us. The the word that uh, our ESV Bibles translates as conceit. Do nothing out of conceit. This is a a compound word that Paul uses by by combining the words empty and glory. At the end of the service, we will sing the doxology, which is a word for praise or for glory. And that's the word he uses there, glory or doxa. That's what Paul is referring to here. The Christian is to sing the praises and glory of God. But on the other hand, when we do not have that mindset that seeks to glorify God in all that we do, we become empty of that glory. And we become hollow, empty shelves of who we were created to be. We were created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That first question of our catechism. What a wonderful question. What a wonderful reminder of what we were created to be. And so we're taught here that when we value others, or when we value ourselves above others, rather, we are falling short of what we were created to be. By seeking our own gain, we are emptying ourselves of the glory that we should be ascribing to God we are not living in light of the reality that we belong to Christ and to his kingdom. We are not behaving as citizens worthy of that calling. We're failing to live in light of our ultimate destiny. See, there is that coming day when Christ will return, when we will be made like him, and we, when we will have glorified bodies, when we will bear the image of the man of heaven just as surely as we've borne the image of the man of dust. And so we are to live like that now and follow his example. His example that looks like humility and self-denial. So we've seen the goal, the goal of unity of heart and mind. And we've seen the means of accomplishing that goal through humility, self-denial, considering others more valuable than ourselves. And we've gotten to this point and maybe at this point this just doesn't sound appealing at all. Sounds like a lot of work to accomplish something that doesn't even sound all that good to begin with. Why bother with any of this? Let's look back at the beginning of this passage. Turn back and look here at the reasons why this is so important, the reasons for doing all this work in the first place. And the reason is that the trying love of God It enables us to pursue this goal. What is the reason? It's it's nothing other than the triune love of God. The love that God has within the triune Trinitarian relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's magnificent. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And that same love is extended to us in covenant relationship with God. So look back at the logical connection in our passage here. Paul makes an if-then statement like we said. He says, if these things are true, verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And he is perfectly clear. These are all true. Since this is the case, and it very much is, Then all the rest follows. So what are the reasons? Simply simply put, this is who God is and this is what he created us to be. This is God's nature. Let's look at this, this portrait and this picture of God's nature that Paul paints for us here. First, he starts with the comfort or encouragement of Christ. The person of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the son of God. He is the one who took on flesh. He's the one who came and dwelt with sinners. He touched lepers. He healed the sick. He comforted the weak. He has compassion on the hungry and the lost. He is the one who is near to the brokenhearted to comfort and encourage them. He is the good shepherd and the sheep hear his voice as he calls out to them to comfort and protect them. And because of this encouragement from Christ, therefore, we strive toward the goal of being of one mind like him. Not only that, there's another reason. There is love from God the Father. Now, Paul doesn't mention God uh, the Father explicitly in this text, but there is good reason for us to believe that he intends this reading. Many scholars, they see the connection between this verse and Paul's benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians, which is almost verbatim for what he says here. And you've heard me say that before. You will hear me say it again at the end of this service. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Likewise, here, Paul is pulling in that Trinitarian language, attributing the love of God to the father, the loving and benevolent father who delights in giving good gifts to his children. And that love is seen nowhere clearer than in his gift of sending his only begotten son into the world to seek and to save sinners. That is the love of the father. And that love exists. And it's a comforting love. To know that regardless of our current state in life. No matter the extent of the love. That we have from friends and family. Or the lack of love that we have. Even from our earthly fathers. We know. That there is an abundance. Of love. In our heavenly father. That we do not even have eyes to see. Or understand. Just the overabundance. Of his gracious and wonderful love for us. So Paul says it's not only the comfort of Christ. It's not only the love of God the Father. But there is another reason. There is also the partnership or participation or fellowship in the spirit. During Jesus's earthly ministry he told his disciples that he would uh, be taken from them but that he would uh, that, that this would actually be a good thing because he would be sending his very own spirit to them. And so he did and so it is with all of us who are in Christ that we have the very spirit of Christ dwelling in us. And not only does the spirit unite us to Christ in our effectual calling does not only regenerates us and works faith in our lives and, and applies the redemption purchased by Christ using the instrument uh, of faith by which we, we are uh, justified in God's sight and counted righteous, not, not for any righteousness in us, but only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us as received by faith alone. All of this is the working of God's spirit. All of that is true. But the Spirit also works to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ each and every day. And the Spirit, in doing so, unites us to one another. It creates a fellowship of believers. It's the kind of fellowship, it's the kind of fellowship that Jess and I experienced as we came here in October. October. Not knowing you very well at all. But in a very real sense knowing you so well. Because we belong to one another. Because we're both sheep of the same pasture. We both belong to the good shepherd. We know his voice. We follow him. We, we love to follow him. You know that feeling. That feeling of being with fellow Christians, fellow believers, fellow sons and daughters of the living King. See, this is the power of the Spirit. This is the Spirit that turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, hearts that are beating after Christ. This is the Spirit that unites those people, body and soul, to Christ Jesus. And when we are one body with Christ, we are one with each other. And what God has put together, we must not separate. That is the perfect love of the Father, Son, and Spirit that they have with one another. That love that's extended to us as we're brought into covenant relationship with him. And we are united to one another in that love. And Paul then, he adds these two words, any affection, any sympathy. The affection here is what he mentioned at the beginning of his letter, the the affections of Christ, those gut-wrenching feelings referring to the internal organs. That's what that word refers to. Those are the feelings that Christ has for us. Christ has a real physical human body and his real physical human body, it yearns for you. He loves you. And this kind of emotional feeling is ours. And we should have that feeling for one another. That is how Christ feels towards us. If there is any affection, any sympathy in this way toward us, and there is, then this goal is not just some suggestion, but it is absolutely necessary. It is a necessity for us To be striving toward. We must strive toward the goal of joyful unity. Through humility and self-denial. Because of the triune God's love and affection for us. What a beautiful picture Paul paints. Of not only this inter-Trinitarian relationship but also of our triune God's relationship to us and our, uh, the ideal of the kind of relationship that we should be striving toward with one another. How good and pleasant it is truly when God's people dwell in unity. But so there's one final point that we must end on, something we've mentioned just briefly earlier, but that's worth discussing as we close. And that is this, that we must not appeal for unity blindly. Unless the unity has a solid foundation, no true unity can be established. That's the missing piece in a lot of our modern appeals for and and conversations about unity today. What foundation are the Philippians to build their unity upon? If they are to think alike, if they are to have one mind, that poses the question for us, what exactly are they to be thinking about? What is the object of of the the content of what their minds are supposed to be uh, wrapped around? What is the content or the doctrine or the substance of what they are to be agreed upon? The answer is in the next verse going into Verse 5. That they are to have the mind of Christ. And that's for next week. We don't have time to to dig into that all, all today. But it's only from absolute devotion to Jesus Christ. And following his example and his teaching and his commandments. That we can have unity. We must follow the supreme example of Christ who humbled himself who took on flesh, who became a servant, was obedient even to the point of death. Yes, even death on the cross. That is how we then can be unified as we humble ourselves as Christ humbled himself and seek the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But apart from that, if we are not seeking after Christ, If we are not seeking to live as becomes followers of Christ in accordance to his law, his rule, his scriptures, his commandments, then no unity can be had. That means that we do not have unity with sin. That means that we do not have unity with deceit or with false doctrine. We do not have unity with false teachers. But we contend for the faith We contend for the truth. We stand firm in the scriptures in those moments. That must be understood. That must be said. But nevertheless, as we wrestle and contend for the truth that was once given to us, for that faith once handed down, we must never lose sight of the goal that is set before us. If there is any encouragement in Jesus who is the Christ, if there is any love to be found in the Father who spared not his own Son, if the Holy Spirit truly is where we find our fellowship and participation as sons and daughters of the living God by our spirit-wrought union with Christ, if all of that is true, then we will seek to have the same mind that Christ had let's strive after that goal, not taking our mind and our eyes off of Christ let 's pray Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, the great three in one. we give you all the glory, all the praise, all the adoration. What an amazing, wonderful God that we serve. You and you alone are worthy of our praise you. And you alone know yourself perfectly within that Trinitarian relationship that remains a mystery to us. But yet you have made yourself known to us through your love, through the work of uh, uh, and the life and the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we pray now that you would be uniting us more and more each day, uniting us closer to one another, just as we have been united to you. Uh, may you help us to do the work that is set before us. Uh, may you help us to love one another, to consider others more important than we are. And may we do all of this for your glory. And we pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.